I appreciate uh, what Scott said there and uh, the study that he's done in the Word just to read the Word. And I firmly agree with his sentiment that we are hearing from God when we hear from His Word. And that this is worship as we study His Scriptures, the same as singing, the same as praying. And so I am delighted to be able to share this time with you. Uh, if you are in the room, I apologize for the distractions if you noticed a lot of moving around. So we're having some trouble with our live stream audio. So if you're on live stream today, I, I do apologize for that. Um, not exactly sure what's going on. We'll get it corrected before next week. Sometimes you run into those kinds of things when you are, uh, when you do live stream. So, uh, hopefully though, it is good enough for you to be able to hear and hear the message because I do feel like today and what we're talking about is, um, is extremely important. I think it's important for us in this room and on live stream as we uh, start a new series that we'll be doing for uh, I, I don't actually know how long, a few weeks, maybe longer, you know how that goes around here, but called Rooted and Growing. And uh, Maggie uh, Jenkins isn't here, I don't believe, but she made that image for us and for the series, and so I greatly appreciate her and um, using her gifts to do that. These, this term, Rooted and Growing, we find it in Colossians 2, and what Jonathan read to us this morning. And Paul is writing there to sister churches in the city of Colossae, as well as Laodicea. And as he is writing to them, he is urging them, as we read this morning, that as they have received Christ as Savior, as they have received the person of Jesus and the words of Jesus as Savior, they should also walk or live by the person and the words of Jesus. Salvation is not a one-time event in our lives. It is a radical reordering of our lives and changing of our lives. And so the God who saves us calls us to then walk by Him and in Him. And that is what Paul is urging the churches to do. And he uses this metaphor to describe what that life should look like. As a believer and as believers in a church and a community, what does it look like to walk by the person of Christ? And so Paul uses a metaphor and he, he says you are to be rooted in Him. And obviously when we hear the word rooted, we think of a tree. When we think here of the roots or the root system of a tree, it is the roots firmly fix it to the ground or to the foundation so that it can't be moved. The roots strengthen the structure. You know, we don't, we don't usually admire the roots of a tree. We don't walk up to one and say, well, I, I bet this root system is very impressive. But everything that we can admire about a tree, everything that we do find to be pleasing about a tree, it is because of the roots that are dug down deep. They strengthen the structure. The roots themselves do not nourish the tree, but the roots tap in to nutrients, to water, and it gives life to the entire thing. And so for us, we are to be rooted in Christ. 
And I think that means, as we are familiar with saying here at Agape, that means we are to rely on Jesus for everything. We are to see ourselves as helpless and needy people. And we need Him for every breath. We rely on Jesus. We receive our help from Him. And I also believe it means we are to base our lives on the doctrine of His teaching. What keeps us from being swayed and moved in this world by any other person or belief system is that we are rooted in the person and the teaching of Jesus. And so, if we believe something, it should be because we have taken it through the filter of the teaching of Christ. If we value something, it should be because we have based that on what Jesus has said. Our opinions, our thoughts, our words should all come from the person and the teaching of Christ. And that's what I believe it means to be rooted in Him. And Paul also uses the metaphor of being built up. We are built up in Him. Now, that can certainly mean a structure, a foundation that you are building on, but I would like to keep in mind this illustration of a tree that this tree, because it is rooted strongly, it is growing up. It is advancing. It is reaching higher. The limbs of the tree, the leaves of the tree, they are extending out further and further. In my mind, not to press this too far, but I think those branches are representative of believers and families of believers. And the more families that are in a church, the more branches you have. The more they grow, the further out they go, the higher up they go. I love that imagery. We're growing toward Christ. We're advancing together in the power of God. It's spiritual growth. And in Colossians 2, that's what Paul said in verse 2. He said that the church being knitted together in love... So what binds us together here is love. And being knitted together in love, we are reaching up for full assurance and for understanding and for knowledge of God. So this growth that happens is spiritual growth. And then Paul mentions abounding in thanksgiving. This church, the church, should be rooted in Christ growing in the power of Christ, and abounding in thanksgiving. And here we can think of the fruit that the church community produces. Thanksgiving is part of godly fruit. That should be produced in our lives. But it is one of many godly attributes or godly fruit that the Bible mentions. Fruit in the Bible is what your life produces. Fruit is what a group of believers, the life of the church produces. And so what we are hoping for is godliness, godly traits and godly deeds, godly character and godly actions. That's what we want in the church. And so we know from the teaching of Scripture that the Holy Spirit produces fruit. And what that tells us then is that the Holy Spirit uses 
the church and the gathering of the believers to produce in us godliness, character that mimics that of Jesus, and actions that point to Jesus. And so this is, for me, the image that I have from Colossians 2. Agape is like a tree. Its roots going deep into Jesus, its limbs, the families, and the individuals drawing out or growing out higher and further and producing fruit, much fruit. And so the core of our lives as believers and the core of our life as a church should be desiring to go deeper, to grow higher, to bear more and more and more fruit. And remember that fruit on a tree, the tree doesn't produce fruit for itself. Fruit has two purposes. One, it proves the true nature of the tree and brings glory to its Creator. We've talked about this before, but if you walk up to a tree and there are apples on it, you already know what kind of tree it is. If there was no fruit, you can't always tell the difference. But you know the tree by what it produces, and it brings glory to God. It brings glory to its Creator. The Bible talks about that, how our producing of fruit is for the glory of God. But it is also for the nourishment of people. People enjoy picking fresh fruit off a tree, right? The fruit that we bear in our lives is for others. It's for other believers. It's for the lost. Those who don't know Jesus yet. And so for me, again, this whole imagery is that God in His sovereignty, before any of us were ever born, purposed to plant a tree in Pinson. This name would be Agape Church, and it would be one of many. And the purpose of that church is to go down deep in Christ, to grow up in Christ, to bear much fruit for His glory and for the good of people. And any church that exists, I believe, exists for these reasons. And so my prayer has been for quite some time that Agape would grow in the way that we're talking about this morning. Grow deep, grow high, grow in the producing fruit. And we would grow in our knowledge and our zeal for Jesus. We would grow in our godliness. And that we would grow in fruit that glorifies God and nourishes people. And so my hope in this series however long the Lord leaves us in it, rooted and growing, is that God would use this to put into us as individual believers who are part of a whole in a local church these desires to be more and more zealous, to be firm in our faith, deep into Christ, rooted in Him, to desire to be spiritually growing and advancing, to be able to look at our lives and say, I see where God is moving me. I see where God is changing me. I see where I am reacting differently than I used to. I, am, I see where I think differently. I feel differently. And we would be zealous for that. And we would be zealous 
to produce from our lives fruit that would show our true discipleship and would be helpful to people. And I hope that He will cause us to grow in our love for each other, our love for the church that we're a part of, and the community where He's planted us. This series is going to be about looking at the true nature of the church and the impact of the church. And today is, is the kickoff to that. It's the, uh, the foundational message where we're talking about the essential nature of the biblical community. There's a life truth in your handout. If you like filling in some blanks, there are some there that you can, can do that with as part of taking notes this morning. And we'll start with this life truth. Obviously, we know that we have been in a time as a church, as a community, as a country that has been quite tumultuous. A time period that has been characterized by the need to personal distance. My wife was making the joke this week. She says that she's found herself now. She'll watch a movie or she'll watch a TV show and all of a sudden she'll just be like, wow, they're not separating at all. Because it's become so ingrained in us, we have to remind ourselves that, you know, this is just now kind of a new way of life for many people, this whole idea of distancing. And we have learned, many of us, to work that into how we live, to distance. And it has impacted our routine every aspect of our life, including how we live in community. But one thing that I believe we have learned from this past year, one thing that I believe we can clearly see, and I don't think we could clearly see it at the beginning of this pandemic, but I believe it has become crystal clear, this life truth, that distancing can quickly become isolation. That Learning to personally distance quickly puts you on a slope of becoming isolated. And church, listen, isolation is deadly to your soul. Isolation is as spiritually deadly as the pandemic is physically deadly. And as I said last week, this is not me in any way downplaying the pandemic. If you know me, you know I am relatively taking it, taking it seriously. But the spiritual realities of being isolated are very real. And we can't see the numbers on those. There's no one putting those up on a screen on the news every night. The impact of isolation spiritually. But it is very real. And what I hope we take away from today and in this whole series is that even during seasons of distancing, even if that is necessary, we must strive to remain in Christian fellowship and worship with a family of faith. We must strive, fight to remain in a Christian fellowship and worship with a church community. Because the biblical community is essential. There's a lot of debate about that. It's big this year. What's essential, what's not? I am not interested in what the culture says. I'm not interested in what the politicians say. And you know again, I have led us many times this year 
to do things that governing officials ask us to do because I think the Word tells us where possible to do that without sin, follow them because they are there for your good. But what I will argue with, with all the breath that is in me, is the church community is essential. It is essential to your spiritual life. It is essential to your spiritual health. It is a non-negotiable. There is no such thing as individualistic Christianity. But I don't want you to take my word for it. So let's look at Hebrews 10 together that Scott read just a moment ago. Let me say a couple of things about Hebrews 10 and Hebrews in general. This original, really what appears to be a sermon, it is it's not written exactly like a letter, so a lot of theologians think it was perhaps originally a, a, a long sermon or at least a sermon in letter form. And it was written to Hebrew or Jewish Christians or Gentiles who had at one time been drawn into the Jewish religion. And what apparently is happening is that some of those Jewish Christians or some of the Gentiles who had been familiar with the Jewish religion and participated in it, that they were apparently in danger of wandering away from Christianity. That they had come to a belief in Christ and started living that life out and walking in Christ and with the church, but now they were in danger of wandering from the church. They had become less attentive to Christian teaching. In Hebrews, they're, they're, they're told they're dull of hearing. And, as we're going to see in just a moment, they had stopped gathering together. And this may have been because of persecution. Based on what Hebrews is about, they may have been facing persecution for gathering, or it could have been sinfulness that they had fallen into, or the trials and the busyness of life, and they were pulling back from the church. And so in Hebrews 10, the author, as Scott said, we don't exactly know who that is. Ultimately, we know it was the Holy Spirit. We don't know what man was used to write this. But in Hebrews 10, in verse 19, he starts off, Therefore, and as a shout out to our friend Chris Taylor who moved recently, I think he said over and over, when you see therefore, you ask, what is the therefore? If you think that's corny... Just remember Chris said it. Anyway, therefore tells us that what he's about to say is a product of what he has just said. So what has he just said? He's been talking about the superiority of Jesus and the cross to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Don't know how much you know about that, but in the old sacrificial system of the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament then you have undoubtedly seen some of this before. It seems odd to us, but you had a priest who would repeatedly offer physical sacrifices of animals for worshipers. Worshipers would come to worship God and a sacrifice would be offered for the forgiveness of their sins. And this was repeated over and over and over. And the writer of Hebrews says the reason... It had to be done over and over and over is because it wasn't good enough to take away anyone's sin. And he tells us that ultimately that whole system was a shadow of Jesus. I love that. That 
no one yet had physically seen the reality and the substance of the person of Jesus. They could see the shadow, and that whole system was a shadow cast by the one to come, Jesus. And then he tells us in, in verse 10, excuse me, in chapter 10, verse 14, if you have a Bible, he says there, for by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I love that verse. Hold on to that verse. It tells you that in Christ you are perfected, but you're still being sanctified. It is the already, but not yet. And Jesus did that with one sacrifice. He's not going to the cross over and over and over again. He went to the cross once because His death and His blood was sufficient. For all sins, for all times. And you and I in Christ are both perfect and being made perfect. And that is where the author of Hebrews picks up in verse 19. Based on all of this, he says, I want to give you two conclusions and three exhortations. That's what comes next. So let's look at what he says. Two conclusions and three exhortations. The first conclusion is in verse 19. Therefore, church, since Jesus has offered Himself as a sacrifice one time for all sins... You now have confidence to enter the places, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So conclusion number one, in Christ the Christian has confidence to enter the presence of God. That's the result. Confidence means freedom. It means boldness. It means certainty. All of us in this room, we've been places before that when we were there, we were there but we kind of knew we didn't belong, right? Like it, it didn't really feel like home. We knew that it wasn't our place. We knew that we really didn't belong there. You know, maybe it's just something simple as a vacation rental, right? If you have kids, you go to a vacation rental, you're like, please don't break anything. You break something at home, you know, I can just put it on my to-do list, maybe I'll get to it. You break something here, you want to pay for it. It's home, but it's not home. And so when you are at a place where you really know that I'm here, but I don't really belong, you act more cautiously. You have an uneasiness, maybe a trepidation. But you've also experienced being in a place where you knew you were supposed to be there. It was home. It was yours. You belonged. Maybe it was... Maybe it's your place or maybe it's just a really good friend. And every time you go to their house, you make yourself at home. What does that mean? Like You act like it's yours. You go to the best chair. You get food without asking. Whatever. Because you feel at home there. You're more bold. You have freedom. By faith in Christ... You have the privilege of entering the presence of God and knowing you belong there. You don't have to ask, am I welcome? You don't have to ask, do I have His favor? You don't have to ask, do I need to tread cautiously? You belong. 
You have confidence. Now, I need to say, confidence is not recklessness. It's not familiarity. I'm not saying that you ever forget God's God and you are not. I cringe at when we use language about God that's too familiar as in we're forgetting our place. But He has told us, you belong here. I am your Father. Jesus said, I don't just call you servants, although you are, I also call you friends. So in Christ, we have confidence to enter God's presence. And then conclusion number two, in Christ, your God and your Savior is your mediator. Your God and your Savior, Jesus, is your mediator. Unlike that Old Testament system, if you wanted to worship God, you had to go through a man. You had to go through a priest. But in Christ, you have direct access to God. You don't have to go through anyone. Leaders, I think, are important in Scripture. They, they serve a role. We're going to talk about that at some point in this series, I believe. But you do not have to go through a priest or a pastor or any man or woman to have access to God. Because Jesus has reconciled you to the Father. And He is the mediator between God and man. In the Old Testament, you went to a temple to meet with God. Today, you go to Jesus to meet with God. So from those conclusions, the writer of Hebrews gives us three exhortations. An exhortation is a, it's more than an encouragement. It's not just a command, it's, it's from the heart. This must be done, but it is to be done from the heart. Not simple, narrow obedience to something that's written, a written rule, but from your spirit, obey and follow this. I exhort you. I encourage you, I command you, I plead with you, I persuade you. All of those things are tied up in the word exhortation. And the writer of Hebrews gives us three. Number one, let us go to God. How could it be that we have this privilege and this access and we don't take advantage of it? How could it be that Jesus shed His blood and gave His life so we have direct access to the Father and we are more compelled by the things of the world than we are to go to the presence of God? And the author of Hebrews who is saying some of you are pulling from the faith, some of you are going back to an old system, some of you are wandering away, some of you are not gathering anymore. And he's saying, why? Draw near to God. Go to God. This is your privilege. Psalm 95.6, I have a friend who's a pastor at church on the other side of town, and almost every Sunday he puts on social media at the beginning, come and let us worship. Psalm 95. I, I, I want, I pray every Sunday in my office, at home, before church, God, would you gather your people today? Would you bring the people together? 
Would you overcome whatever may be happening that they can gather? But you know what, church? I don't want us to gather out of mere responsibility. I want us to be eager for it. I want us to be as eager to get together as a community of believers. I want us to be as eager to participate in live stream worship in this day of distancing. I want us to be as eager to be together in the worship of the Lord as we are anything else, more so than anything else in our lives. You know that we all have things in this world nobody has to compel us to do. We're excited about it. I get that way about getting to go on a trip, getting to go to the mountains or the beach or something when the Lord allows. I, like, I, I am ready. There's never a thought in my head, man, just, it came too soon. Wish I didn't have to go. I want us to have that eagerness about coming here. I, like, I know it's hard. We had six kids. My wife does the majority of the work to get them here. I know it's difficult. But I want us to be eager to be together. And I think that's what this exhortation is. Let us go to God. Draw near. You understand what Christ has done? You have access to God. And not just together as a community, but individually in your own lives. In prayer, in the Word. Go to God. Be eager for that. Exhortation number two comes from verse 23. Let us be restrained restrained by our faith. Let us be restrained by our faith. He says in, in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Now, I chose the word restrained. That's a little odd to use in connection with faith. But that same word, hold fast, is used in Romans 7, 6, and it is translated held captive. And it's talking about that you were at one time held captive to sin. Same word. But now in Christ, we're not held captive to sin. We should be held captive to Jesus. We should be restrained by Him. So part of this exhortation is church in, in everything that Christ has done, in His work on the cross and His sacrifice to forgive of your sins, be restrained by His Lordship. Don't waver. Don't let someone come along and teach you or tell you something that totally undermines your rooted belief in Scripture. I'm not saying we shouldn't learn new things or go deeper in doctrine. I think we should. But how many times, the young people here, this happens in college where young people get to college and they get under a professor that just undermines with a few simple words everything they've ever been taught or believed. And for some of us, it's like the first time we've ever heard someone say, hey, you know none of that's true, right? And part of this exhortation is don't waver. Be rooted. Don't don't listen to persuasive talk from the culture and waver on what you believe in your faith, in the words of Jesus that He has spoken. And don't wander from it. Don't wander into sin. Don't wander into false religions. Don't do those things. Stay rooted. 
There is not a superior way to live. The best way to live is in Christ. That's what the author is saying. So be restrained by your faith and your belief in Him. Even with sin, we can easily become convinced that there's a more pleasurable or joyful way to live. And the author of Hebrews is saying there's not. Even momentary pleasure will lead to death apart from Christ. So be restrained by your faith in Him. And in exhortation number 3, verse 24 and 25, let us highly regard the church and our responsibility in it. Let us highly regard the church and our responsibility in it. Notice every exhortation that He gives is let us. It's plural. He's not just saying you, individual Christian. He's saying you, church. You, the people of God. You, local assembly. Go to God, be restrained by your faith, and highly regard the church. We get these commands as a community. And this one makes it really crystal clear. To consider, which is what the language is, consider each other. It means consider how to make an account in your life for the church. How to make an account in your life to place your time and your energy in the community of believers. Make room for one another. Make time for one another. Make energy for one another. Make room for the church. Highly regard the church. I'm probably going to get in trouble. I don't have any person in mind. The Lord just brought this to my mind. I'm using it as an example, right? But there are families all across our state, our community that we've seen over the years. They highly regard activities, sporting events, and being involved in those things. And, and church, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's really good. Our family does that. But it is not really good to highly regard that far more than you highly regard the church. It's not. If you can only make room for one, the church is the superior place to place your investment of time and energy. It is eternal. I'm not saying don't do one, but I'm saying consider everything that we give ourselves to and whether or not we have room and time for the community of believers. And within this exhortation, highly regard the church and our responsibility in it is a very specific instruction in verse 25. Do not abandon assembling together. And if you want to write on top of the word abandon, forsake, you can write that because both are applicable. Do not abandon or do not forsake assembling together. So he says, let us consider the church. Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. So again, there were people who were beginning to pull back. And the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says don't do that. Don't forsake the gathering. Don't forsake assembling together. And that word... 
Meet together, the word for meet together is used one other place in the New Testament. And it's in 2 Thessalonians 2.1. And it describes when Jesus comes and gathers His church to Himself. So the type of meeting that He has in mind is the type of gathering that happens under the authority of Jesus that we will see with our eyes the day Jesus returns for His church. And He gathers them together. And the author of Hebrews says, until then, don't neglect assembling together. Don't neglect being in the presence of Jesus together. In the New Testament, we see pictures of the early church. They frequently gathered at the temple. They frequently gathered in homes for fellowship. They went to worship together in large groups. We see pictures of that. If they'd had coffee shops back then, I think they would have went there. They went where they could and they got together. They gathered. They learned Scripture. They prayed. They sang songs. They served. They shared meals. And the author of Hebrews knew that some people were neglecting this and he knew that some of them were neglecting it due to danger or threat. The reason they were no longer getting together is because of the danger that they might face if they got together. And in that case, the danger of persecution. And so what is his response? Not only don't stop, but do it more than you did before. And if their response had been, but wait a minute, it's dangerous to get together, perhaps he would have said yes, and it will get more dangerous as we get closer to the return of Jesus. So keep getting together more and more and more. The Bible says don't stop assembling during difficult times. It's a very similar argument that Paul makes in Romans 13 where he says, the more you see the day of Christ coming, wake up from your sleep, from carelessness, and live rightly. Times of trouble are not times to withdraw. This is the first time in my lifetime of 42 years that I can ever remember being told it was dangerous to go to church or it was dangerous to gather with other believers. I'm not speaking to whether that is real danger or not. It's not the point. I'm saying it's the first time I've ever been told that in my life. But church, we need to realize that is the way of life for some believers. This is not new to them. They live under threat. They gather under threat. And it's not of a virus. It is of being put in jail or to death if they gather as a community of Christians. But you know what you find in a lot of those places? is the church grows and the church flourishes. And perhaps God has given us an opportunity to relate to those Christians and to grow even in the midst of danger. Times of trouble are not times to withdraw. Trouble is a reminder we need Jesus. When you see trouble, you flee in increasing measure. We need to tune that to our minds. Trouble, I need to be with other believers. Worry, I need to be with other believers. Fear, anxiety... 
anger at what I see, I need to be with other believers. So often, when we get discouraged, when we get tired, when we get scared, we get depressed, we withdraw. We're too busy. We take Sunday off or we take a a small group off or something like that. Look, that's going to happen to everybody. I missed the last two small groups we did. Amen, Deans. I just want to point that out before they point it out. It's going to happen, but you and I know that sometimes we let busyness be the excuse to not gather. We say, I just need a day at home. I just need to rest. Church, I'm not trying to be religious. I'm not trying, this is not about attendance keeping. What I am telling us though is that we have a tendency to withdraw when we're tired or worried or stressed. And the Bible says, don't withdraw, don't distance because that will quickly become isolation. Don't convince yourself that you need rest from other believers. Go to God with them. Go to God with them. What we actually need in those times is encouragement. We need comfort. We need the cheerfulness that comes from being with other believers. We need the persuasion of biblical truth. When you're down, you need someone who loves you to quote Scripture to you. And you know what? It might not be the Scripture you want to hear. But you need that. I need that. Young people in this room, the habits that you form right now, the thoughts that you form right now about church and the life of the church and your place in it, you will carry that into your adult life. You will carry that into your families. Parents in this room who have children, young children, your children are watching the the priority that you put on the community of believers and they will mimic what they learn from you. They will believe about the church what they see you believe about the church. They will live in the church the way they see you live in the church. So the exhortation here is highly regard the church and highly regard your responsibility in it. What is your responsibility in it? Verse 24, stir one another up to love and good works. That word stir up means provoke. It can also mean incite. Incite and provoke one another to love and good works. You and I are supposed to live in such a way that our interactions within the church body give rise to love and good works in other people. We should live in such a way that when someone's around us, they leave our company stirred up to love and stirred up to good works. That's what the Bible is showing us here. Love for God. Love for each other. Love for the lost. And the good works of bearing fruit. I think that's one reason that the Bible tells the church so often, like, don't slander one another, don't gossip. This, this is not a community where when we're frustrated with somebody, we call each other up and rant. This is a community where we are unifying people. We stir one another up to love. We stir one another up to good works, bearing fruit, fruitfulness of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uses the biblical community to bring out of us more and more godly affection, more and more godly deeds. To be a person 
who someone could say of you, when I'm around them, I want to follow God more. When I'm around them, I, I, I want to do good works in His name more. They stir me to that. And you and I are, are told to spend time and energy pondering how to do that. Consider how to stir one another up. There should be a thought process in this community of faith where we sit around and we say, how could I help Rob be stirred up to love and good works this week? How could I help Corey? How could I help Sam? How could I help Halen? How could I help Alyssa be stirred up this week to love and good works? And let God put people in your heart and consider that. Do that for the church God has placed us in. This We should value this. So church, is it any wonder if we understand that the biblical community has a role in our perseverance, that the biblical community has a role in our spiritual growth, that the, that the biblical community has a role in our rootedness in the doctrine and teaching of Jesus, that the biblical community has a role in our encouragement in the faith and our love for God and other people in a role in our good works, is it any wonder that the enemy of our souls wants to keep us from the church? No, that's exactly what he would do. When, when you understand what a source of biblical and spiritual strength the church is supposed to be, then absolutely the enemy will try to keep us from that. And he may even convince us that it's for our good. That we're too busy, or that it's too fearful, or it's too distressing. So I want to end with a specific thought about how we apply this to the situation we find ourselves in in this pandemic. And I have prayed to do this in a way that I am not needlessly offensive. It's not my intention. And I hope you know at this point that the way that we have tried to lead as pastors this year has been to not draw lines in the sand and take very strong opinions on things and how, how we need to do things. We've, we've really left a lot of the decisions of gathering and in-person or on live stream up to individuals, and I still think that's the right thing to do, that it is between you and the Lord on how exactly you walk this out. We've recommended certain things in this room, to distance, to wear masks in and out. We've said that, and we still say that. But... We have to be able to say to our hearts that when the Spirit of God inspired the biblical author of Hebrews to write what we've just read, He knew there would be pandemics. He knew that there would be times when gathering would happen under the threat of danger, imprisonment, or death. He knew that the world would tell the church at times that being together was not essential. And so I want you to know the point of this series is not to pretend there's not a pandemic. I think that's quite foolish. The point of this series is not to call you to recklessness. It's 
not to call, call you to be unwise in what you do. I'm not telling you that utilizing technology to connect with one another or a body of believers is wrong. I don't. I actually think it's a gift. I think it's a gift that we should use for the glory of Christ rather than just for all of the worldly reasons we use it. But what I am saying to you is that no matter how God leads you to navigate the physical dangers of the pandemic, there are aspects of the Christian life that are not negotiable. And to take a break from them is to endanger our souls. If you isolate yourself from the community of believers, you are in spiritual danger. If you're not in a community of faith where you're being provoked to love and good works, you will risk not growing spiritually or at worst wandering from the faith. So I believe at the onset of this series that we must wrestle with how we do what Christ has called us to do even when it's not easy to do it. I've had people tell me this year. I'm not comfortable coming to in-person gatherings yet. I totally respect that, and I've not pushed anyone to do that. But I've also had people tell me, I don't really do live stream and technology and stuff. Okay, what are you doing, though? We need to ask ourselves that question. We can't just wait 18 months, 2 years, or whatever it may be till maybe all this blows over. And I don't know that it's going to look like it did before anyway. And we must wrestle how we obey God even in the midst of where we are. If we use different tools, if we use different ways to connect, then we must do that. My heart today is to compel you that we need the community. We need to invest ourselves in a community of believers. We need that community of believers to invest in us. So, no, I'm not saying be reckless. No, I'm not saying that the way that, that you're choosing to gather is wrong. I am saying that we need each other. We need the church. Look, you can come into this room and be here in person and be totally checked out and not be any better than not coming. You can get on live stream and be totally connected to what's happening. What I'm compelling us to is our heart. And not just the large gathering, but being there for each other. So two questions. And you know how preachers work, so it's two questions with multiple questions in them. But one, do I see the church as essential in my life? And how can I engage with the church more this year, even in the midst of a pandemic? Do I see the community of believers as essential, the way the Bible describes it? And how am I going to engage this year more with that community? And if you, and, and if you say, look, I'm not in a place where my faith allows me into, into large groups again. Again, I respect that, but my question still remains. Okay, so what are you going to do? How are you going to engage? Do you see it essential? It is. So what are you going to do? Second question. And I speak to those of us in this room who are helpful. Those of us who feel comfortable getting together in person. 
And I say to us that we must not and cannot ignore those who are at risk and unable to gather right now. It's not enough just to say, well, that's their choice. They're not here. We have a responsibility all the more to consider them and question how we can help draw them in and stir them up to love and good works. So the second question is, how do I use my time and energy to provoke other believers to love and good works? Provoke's not always a bad word. Incite's not always a bad word. Here it's used in a positive way. Provoke one another to love. Provoke one another to good works. So how are you doing that? How are you using the gifts that you've been given to bring out of people love and good works? And how can you reach people who are disconnected right now and let them know they are loved and that you want to stir them up as part of the body of believers here? John, you can come up. I really want us to think through those things. really want us to consider those things. And I want us to know that we do these things for our joy, Jesus said, I've come to give you life and give it more abundantly. I speak words to you that your joy may be full. Church, everything that we've talked about today, even if it seemed heavy to you, it is in obedience to these commands that we find our joy, true joy. So as we prepare to end, and you can bring the lights down, we're going to end in worship and, and prayer. And I want us to take this time seriously. But I want to first and foremost ask you, on the live stream in this room, are you part of the community of believers? Do you know Jesus? Have you repented of your sins? Have you been baptized as a profession of your faith? That's how we enter into the community. You don't need a man. You don't need a priest to do that. It is to go before the Lord and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. I believe Jesus made one sacrifice. And I don't know all how it works, but I believe I'm forgiven because of Him. And then you're baptized as a picture of what God has done in your life. If you've never done that, if you've never had that moment, I'm not asking you, are you religious or do you go to church or anything like that, I'm saying... Have you had that moment where you've repented of your sins? If you haven't, would you please, before you leave here today, come and see me? Or you could talk to Kevin, you could talk to Rob, you can talk to John. If you come to me, I'm just going to say, let's, let's talk this week. I'll make time for you to talk. If you're a young person, I'll, I'll make that time with your parents. Respond to God and His Word through salvation.